Hi, I'm Martina McBride. You know, I've known these shady ladies for a very long time, and I love to hear their stories. But you have to take them with a grain of salt. Now, these tales and opinions are not for the faint of heart, and this podcast is not suitable for children. But then, neither is the music business. (laughs) So light one up and lighten up, because you're listening to the Shady Ladies of Music City. Is this on? Are we doing it now? What are we saying again? I'm Evelyn. And I'm Susan. Some people refer to us as... The Shady Ladies of Music City. Joel Catch is legendary in the music business. For the artists that he represented, He be, his first client was uh, James Brown. And he went on to represent Jimmy Buffett, George Strait, Julio Iglesias, Bobby Brown, Michael Jackson, and the people that he has uh, put into place as executives, including me and Evelyn at Asylum, is legendary. Plus, he's represented so many organizations like the Grammys and the CMAs. Anyhow, he's also our good friend. So here is Joel Katz. I was going to say, why don't you start with uh, who your first client was in uh, the entertainment business, Jolie? That's so interesting to me. Yeah, my first real client in the entertainment business when I started my actual entertainment law practice was none only, none only than the godfather of soul, Mr. James Brown. And that was, to me, a true education in the entertainment business because he was very smart, James, and very practical, and someone who I learned so much from, which was terrific. How did he find you? He found me through his banker, who was a gentleman named Fred Davis, who was a banker, I believe, with the first Atlanta bank in Atlanta, Georgia. And he lived at the time in Augusta, Georgia, and also lived in New York City in a place in Queens called St. Albans. So how did, he, how did his <laughs> banker, how did the banker know you? Was he your banker? No, he had taken, no, 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 no. He had taken one of my courses that I taught at the time at a new university located in Atlanta, Georgia, called Georgia State University, which at the time was very small and now is one of the biggest, biggest universities in the state. So Fred took a course from you and he heard about you and he had James well, as was, his client. And yes. he thought that you would be a good attorney for James. So what was that like? Was it crazy or was he? Yeah, he, James was looking for a new attorney. He didn't have an attorney at the time. And he wanted someone in the South. And he wanted someone who knew nothing about entertainment law. And I was perfect because I was in the South I was just starting my legal career. I had no business, and I knew nothing about entertainment law. Where was he in terms of his career? He was a superstar. He was already a superstar. So were you overwhelmed when he came to you? No, because I had never met him. And Fred 
when he reached me, Fred Davis, by phone, asked me to go to the Omni Hotel in downtown Atlanta and meet James. And when I went to the Omni Hotel, I had not known who Fred Davis really was. I knew he took my course, but I didn't remember him. And he remembered me, so he met me downstairs and he took me up to the penthouse where James Brown was. And when I walked into the penthouse, I noticed James Brown was sitting there getting his hair done. And that's how I met him. <laughs> and how long were you his attorney for? Till he died. And who became your first client in, in country music? I met a man named Mo Bandy and oh, started you're kidding. working I never with this. Mo. No, I started working with Mo Bandy. And then I was introduced to a man named Willie Nelson, who heard about a deal that I had done for James Brown. No, you're kidding. How did he hear about wow. that? Well, it was a pretty big deal. It was the first deal ever done in the world with a brand new company at the time, which was called Polygram Records. And uh -huh. Polygram Records was, of course, a joint venture of Philips and Siemens, the electronics giants in Europe. And they decided they wanted to be in what they called the software business, which was eventually the record business. And James became their first signing. And we made this deal on behalf of James and a man named Gary Massey recommended me to Willie Nelson, and Willie Nelson wanted to start a label called Lone Star Records. And I got Polygram interested in doing it because they wanted to get into the country business. Willie had been signed to Sony, first to Atlantic. I wasn't involved with him, but I got involved with signing Willie to, to Sony. And then Willie, came with me and we made a deal with Lone Star and I flew with Willie. I remember, this is a long time ago, going to JFK Airport and getting on the Concorde with Willie Nelson to meet all these Europeans because Polygram was a based in Europe company. And we went to meet all these people and talk to them around Holland and Germany, and eventually England, where we flew back on the Concorde. That's the first time I met Willie's manager, Mark Rothbaum, who I believe I met at the JFK airport, before the departure, you know. You know, what's so amazing to me is that the music business is so young, compared to, for instance, banking and law and everything else, the music business has not been around for that long. And look how much money the music business has made for such a short period of time. It's pretty incredible. So we should also say that Joel continues to represent Willie. I mean, the one thing with Joel is that your clients stay with you forever. I mean, 
which is, you know, a great compliment to you as a person. Thank you. And you also have such a long relationship with Jimmy Buffett. And I know you were very, very close to uh, his manager, Howard Kaufman, who's passed. But um, how did you get involved with Buffett? I got involved with Jimmy Buffett through a man who's been my friend for many, many years, who's originally from Champaign, Illinois, but moved to Los Angeles and now lives in Beverly Hills, named Irving Azoff. And Irving Azoff and Howard Kaufman were the manager of Jimmy Buffett, and I met Irving Azoff in a very strange incident in Dallas, Texas, in the lobby of the Intercontinental Hotel. And Irving, who became my friend, introduced me to Jimmy. How did you, what kind of weird incident did you meet him in? Well, I was going to meet Willie Nelson, to get him to sign some agreements. And we decided to meet in Dallas because it was just convenient, even though Willie lived in Austin. So we were both gonna stay at the Intercontinental Hotel, which I don't think is in Dallas any longer. And I was checking in to the hotel and I noticed this little guy with a big beard and a lot of hair to my left, checking in, you know, with the, with the desk clerk. And he was getting really screamy and loud and basically saying, where's my suite? We're supposed to be ready and it wasn't ready. And I looked over to him and very quietly, because I'm not really usually that loud, and I said to him, hey, little fella, Calm down. You're going to have a heart attack and die here. Yeah. And he looked at me and said, well, who are you? (laughs) Well, he is relatively small. And I said, (laughs) yeah. So I said that to him and he looked at me and said, hey, fella, who are you? I said, my name is Joel Katz. I was very polite to him. And he said, oh. Well, I'm Irving Azoff, and I'm in the music business. And I said, a pleasure to meet you. And I'm in the music business, too. He said, no kidding. Who do you represent of any value? And I said, well, Willie Nelson and James Brown. He said, how come I don't know you? Come up to my suite. It's supposed to be ready in 20 minutes. And we went up there and stayed for about oh, I guess 45 minutes and just talked and became friends. And he said to me, I got this act who can never get his lawyer on the phone. If you promise to talk to him on the phone, I'll send you down there to meet him in Key West, Florida. It's a fellow named Jimmy Buffett. And I met Jimmy in Key West because I promised to always return his phone calls and did. And... We became friends and watched Margaritaville grow and be built, which was fabulous. It's so funny that I didn't meet you in Key West because I was living in Key West at the time next door to Jimmy. And it's, you know, amazing that I didn't meet you. I Well, when I first went down there, I was living at the Hibiscus Hotel and Jimmy was living... uh, 
right on the water next to what became the reach next to like what was Louis's backyard. Uh, yeah, he was, was big... he had an apartment at Louis's backyard right near there. Right. Right. And he was with Jane Slagsball at the time and uh I was there and I met them both at uh at Louis's and uh Jimmy had just had the, the white sport coat and the pink crustacean come out, I think. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> remember that record? And, yes, uh, I do. You know, he was a big favorite in Key West, and I had oh, yeah. my popcorn stand. And uh, so, you know, we were both doing kind of idiosyncratic things. His, of course, made a lot more money than my popcorn stand. But uh, that's how I met him. But I'm surprised I didn't meet you. Well, it's a very funny story, if you want me to tell you how I actually met him. The meeting was set up. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. why we're here. I went down to Key West. I went down to Key West. I first went to Big Pine Key, where I met another client of mine named David Allen Coe. And spent a little time with huh. David, who is a very interesting man and very smart. And then I went very smart, but Meshuga, <laughs> a Yiddish word, very a Yiddish descriptive. Word. I might well, Evelyn say. Well, is, Evelyn is partly Jewish. <laughs> That's right. Not really, but I always thought she was. So you went to Big Pine. Let him finish his story. I went to Key West, yes, and I was at the a place that Marriott, I think, owned because the Casa Marina Hotel. And Jimmy was supposed to meet me for breakfast at 9 o'clock. Well, 9 o'clock comes, I'm sitting there, no Jimmy. 9.30 comes, no Jimmy. At 10 o'clock... A very nice woman comes to my table and she says, are you Joel Katz? Are you waiting for Mr. Jimmy Buffett? And I said, yes, I am. How did you know me? And she said, well, you're the only single sitting here in the restaurant of the Casa Marina Hotel. And my name is Sunshine Smith. I'm Donna oh Smith. God from South Carolina, and I'm really Jimmy's secretary, but hopefully I'll move up in our organization. Jimmy is slightly delayed in a meeting. I said, oh, okay. She said, so let's have breakfast, you and I, because I don't think Jimmy's gonna meet. I said, well, he was supposed to interview me and tell me if I was suitable to be his attorney. She said, he'll be here, don't worry, he'll be here. So about 11 o'clock, Jimmy comes rolling in and he looked a little tired and he sat down and he said, hey, I'm sorry, I'm really late. I'm two hours late, I just got going. And I realized he was not at an earlier meeting. And he said, so you're going to be my new attorney, my manager, Irving Azoff and Howard Kaufman recommended you to me. Will you always return my calls? I said, yeah, of course. It's called being polite. 
And I said, yeah, I'll do that. He said, well, I'm going surfing. The meeting is over. You're hired. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> well, we should also add that, that Joel continues to represent Jimmy Buffett all these years later. <laughs> yeah, we've all gotten old together. How did you get hooked up with George Strait? I met George Strait through uh, Irv Woolsey, who at the time was leaving Universal Records to, to basically become George Strait's manager. I think, if I remember correctly, Irv Woolsey was the head, was an executive at Universal music group where Irving Azoff had become the president of that company and right. Jim Fogelzong, I think, was the president of Nashville, if I'm correct. And what happened was I was introduced to George by Irv and then we started working with, with George Strait and he became a big star, obviously. So Joel basically represented everybody in country music. I mean, you know, every major act that had a deal and every one that wanted a deal. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened. It's a, it's a very strange circumstance. Why? I was representing Willie and he had the Redheaded Stranger, which became a giant record for Columbia Records. At the time, all contracts were made in Nashville and for country music artists. And the Nashville heads of the companies usually did the contracts and they either got help from a Nashville business affairs person at the company or the New York or California company used a specific designated business affairs person. So I went to CBS Records where Willie was and I talked to a man named Rick Blackburn and I said, Willie is selling millions of records. You can't continue to pay him $75,000 a record. This is ridiculous. And he said, I understand. So how about if we pay him 100? And I looked at him like he was completely crazy. And I went back to Atlanta. I told Willie to just cool it for a minute and let me think about what to do. And I called friends in New York at CBS Records, which owned Columbia Records. And there was a man who was the chairman at the time of CBS Records named Walter Yetnikoff. <laughs> and I went to New York and I, like I went and met this gentleman. I'd never met him before in my life, Walter Yetnikoff. And I went into his room to meet him about Willie Nelson. Now, never before had any country music artist gone to New York to negotiate their contracts. They had all been done in Nashville. And I looked at Walter and I said, this is unfair. You're judging him by a different standard 
based upon what Mr. Blackburn wants to do. And I said, you should use the same standard you use for Bruce Springsteen for Willie Nelson, because they're both selling the same amount of records right now. And he said, I agree with you. What do you want? And I just said, I want a million dollars an album, and I want a million dollar advance. And Walter said, I don't know, but I know that you gotta get seven figures because he's selling well enough to justify that. So we worked it out. I don't remember the exact deal, but we worked it out. And I went back to Nashville and I met Willie who was recording in Nashville and he was very happy and he introduced me to Waylon. And Waylon said, Willie told me what you just got me. You gotta go get my deal done. And then it spread like wildfire because these guys had not been getting paid properly for what they had been selling. And they needed an advocate to go in there and talk and speak for them. And I'll never forget one day I was in Austin, Texas, and Willie was sitting at a bar with David Allen Coe, with Waylon, and with George Jones, who I later became his lawyer as well. And Willie said, because I walked in, he said, here's Joel. Joel goes to New York and California on behalf of us, and he talks this Jew talk with these guys, and he meant Yiddish. <laughs> and what happens is we get money. We got to have Joel on our team. And Willie started calling me little buddy. And that stuck. And he's been calling me little buddy for probably 50 years. That's funny. That's a great story. Well, you not only represented all the, uh, all the country artists, but you represented a huge number of R&B artists. At you know, like New Edition and all, I mean, you know, uh, uh, L.A. Reid and Babyface. Tony Braxton. Tony Braxton, all the Braxton family. Uh, uh, who was married to Whitney Houston? Bobby Brown, because he was in that group. And Keith Sweat. Well, he was in New Edition, Susan. He was in yeah, New Edition. Yeah. Well, how did you end up meeting all of them? I met them through a young manager who is very bright named Hiram Hicks. And I introduced Hiram Hicks to none other than Irving and Howard. And they became the co-manager along with Hiram Hicks of New Edition who had a big, big giant tour all over the world, which they did. They recorded for UMG too, but it wasn't known as UMG back then. It was known, I think, as MCA. And from New Edition came BBD. Uh, then Irving Bill called Biff me DeVoe. when... Right, Belbin DeVoe. And then Irving called me when L.A. Reid and Babyface moved to Atlanta, Georgia, which they did from Los Angeles, to start a company called La Face which became a booming record company, which was later sold to a company, I believe, 
It was sold to BMG, and I introduced L.A. Reid to a man named Michael Dorneman, who was the chairman of BMG Records. And they owned Arista, they owned all sorts of companies, all globally. And they bought LaFace, but they were in a joint venture with LaFace when they decided to move to Atlanta. And the reason they decided to move was because a lot of the talent that they were signing lived in Atlanta, like Usher and Tony Braxton. And so they decided, let's move to where our talent is. And there's probably a lot of other talent. And they started signing acts and they built a big business and sold it to BMG. Yeah, Tony Braxton, you were, sh I remember her mentioning you on the Grammys, which uh, also you were the attorney for the Grammys for years and for the CMAs. So, you know, you represented not just artists, but also organizations. And you worked with Michael Jackson. That's quite a career swing yes. from Willie to Michael Jackson. I, I, I represented Michael probably six weeks before he passed. And I worked with John Branca for five years, six years, after Michael died, maybe even longer, with the estate. And we still do work for the estate, uh, for John Branca. And you represent Julio Iglesias. Oh, yeah, that's a big relationship, Julio. Julio sold more records than anyone for Sony, which, of course, bought... CBS, you know, uh, than any other artist except Michael. And Julio was the biggest, the absolute biggest Latin artist in the world and received an honor from Sony Music in London. And I was privileged to be there when he received it as the most important and most record-selling Latin artist of all time. And he enjoyed that. I enjoyed it. We had a big dinner that night with all the Sony music people who came out for it. It was a big time. Alfalberti was there from Sony Music Latin, who runs it so well. And he and Julio really had a big celebration. So how many contempt young artists do you represent now? Well, we have a big firm, Susan, and I try now not to be online with lots of young artists. I let the younger people do that because it's easier for them and they have much more in common. I'm an older man and I wind up selling companies. I wind up doing different kinds of work, like we represent a lot of executives. Even weddings. I've, I've married actually three people, uh, three couples, another couple that's not so in the entertainment business, but the person was an investor in the entertainment business. Very good guy. I, I've had the pleasure of being able to preside at three weddings. So what do you think about the business now, Jolie? It's so 
strange that there's no live concerts and you know, I mean, how how do people make money now? The streaming thing, I don't quite understand it. Well, records for the most part, or discs for the most part, physical product is slowly coming to be gone. And streaming has become the medium of exchange where an individual can pay X numbers of dollars and own all the product that a distributor, a streaming company, would have licenses there for. And the streaming company, of course, is paying the record companies for the rights to stream the music directly to their consumers. It's a totally different situation. But is there still a lot of money in it, Joel? I mean, aren't people making a lot of money from the streaming? I think that now, Labels at first are. there was no money. There's very little money being made by the streaming companies because of all the capital expenditures as they grew. There was enormous expense. And yes, they made money. They grew, grossed money, but they didn't net very much. Record companies are probably doing much better because they don't have to make physical product, but there's just stream. They turn it over to the streaming companies and they stream it. So they've eliminated a lot of their expenses and they're getting relatively high advances from the two big streaming companies um, from from them for doing the work. Uh, as you know, Apple was a big company that Doug Morris and Jimmy Iovine got into the streaming business and Apple is still a big streaming company in music but uses music to sell telephones. Very clever. What and about Spotify? Steve Jobs, That's yeah, it's weird. Well, Spotify is the biggest streaming mm -hmm. company now, but they're not in the phone business, Susan. They're just a streaming company started by Daniel Ek in Sweden. You know that. I do. So let me ask you this. So do you think, so do the artists, the writers make money from streaming, but the, the artists that are singing that make money from the streaming. The artists have contracts with their record companies and the record companies pay them on the streamings. Yes. But the writers make more money than the artists that are singing it. It's the same old story. Well, not necessarily, not necessarily. The record companies pay advances and the lawyers negotiate those advances. It's like anything else, Susan. It's a negotiation. Come on. Do you think, Joel, that there'll be stadium shows again and all of that with the... Uh, I mean, aren't a lot of companies being gutted now? Will they be able to pull it together to, to mount big tours again? I sure hope so, because I miss it. I remember, Susan, you and I going to a Kenny Chesney show... It was a stadium show. I don't remember where it was. Where was it, Susan? Do you remember? Up we had Nashville. such a good time. 
Was it in Nashville? It was really? in Nashville. Oh, okay. Maybe not. But, Maybe not. But, you know, Kenny did the biggest stadium shows of anybody. And, you know, do you think that there will ever be like 80,000 people in a in a stadium again? Maybe not in my lifetime, but I think it will happen again, yes. But what's going to happen to all these artists wow. that their whole existence was based on these shows? You know, people don't have money to pay their bands. They don't have money to pay their crews. I mean, it's really gutted the music business. There are new forms of technology which I've seen, especially emanating, frankly, from England, which I think will provide new means of doing shows directly for your home and, you know, for, for viewing in your home. And I think these are very close to being used. They're being used already in Europe and soon to be launched in America. And even when touring begins, these companies that are doing this plan on doing it with the promoters so that you could go to a show, but you also could watch the show at home. Uh, you know, the, all the fun was going to the show and seeing it with people and everybody singing along and, you know, everybody knew the words to every song. When we used to go to Kenny's show and, and Buffett shows, everybody knew every word to every song. And the Eagles, you know, and I mean, if you sit at home and sing along yeah. with it, it, it ain't that great an experience, I don't think. Well, it ain't maybe not, maybe not a great experience for you, but it might be a great experience for a young person who's never been to an event like that when they see these new events. I don't know. Everything is changing, Susan, with COVID-19. I mean, we never thought that we would see a pandemic like this in our lifetime. And we've all had to deal with the terrible situation of it all. And we're all doing the very best we can. And some days I feel great and some days I feel very down like everybody else. I mean, it's just an up and down world now. Well, we really appreciate your time, Joel. I know how busy you are and you, you know, we're very sweet to give us this amount of time and to tell your interesting stories. You're such an accomplished attorney, but you have such great, you know, personal stories. And obviously you're the kind of man that your clients stay with you, you know, throughout your whole life. You've had the luxury of sort of you know, growing up and growing old together. And it, it speaks volumes of uh, the, the relationships that you've formed over the years. So I only have wonderful things to say about you, Joel. Two of my best relationships are with the two shady ladies. And well, I love you both love very you, much. You're both very talented women and very intelligent people. And you've done a great job. And... This podcast series, which was, I guess, your idea and Jason Owen's idea, I wish you all great success with it because it's very important, I think, to learn about the past so you can conquer the future. Very well said, Jolie. 
Thank you, Jolie. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. You be sure to subscribe, and we'll be sure to catch you off guard. So light one up and lighten up. Share and tell your friends. Then rate, review, and subscribe. Don't be quiet about this. We need you to tell everyone because why is someone going to listen to this? No one has any idea who that we are. So it's up to you to get us known. It has to be a viral thing. It has to be a, uh, you know, word of mouth thing because we're putting our faith in your hands. We are. For more information on the podcast, please visit www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Shady Ladies of Music City is recorded and produced in Nashville, Tennessee, and is presented by Monument Records. Executive producers are Jason Owen, Shane McAnally, and Katie McCartney. Our producer is Joel Beaver. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Schaefers. He is also our engineer and editor.